already into week three of Tuesday Home Time for 2021 with Jan Bartlett and hoping that Kevin Healer will be back with the week that was in the very near future. Today, 20 years of actions to end torture and indefinite detention at Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. I'm speaking with Richard Shosinski from the group Witness Against Torture. A roundup of issues concerning the health of the environment in the time of seemingly endless number of chemicals in that environment with Bob Phelps, the Executive Director of the Gene Ethics Network. The Federal Government's latest way to punish and torture refugees, asylum seekers and others, it's the pop-up secret detention centre. Sue Bolton is a councillor with the City of Moreland and she's been following that story. An activist and journalist, Jacob Gregg, has added a new string to his bow, the Renegade Solidarity Sound System. We'll hear how this operates and the various venues and protests it covers. And Palestine and the COVID virus, amongst other issues impacting on Palestinians in the West Bank, Gaza and inside Israel. With the president of APAN, Bishop George Browning, that's Australian Palestine Advocacy Network. Every year in early January, a fast is held in Washington, D.C., the fast for justice, for victims of torture and for the closure of the prison at Guantanamo Bay in Cuba, where presently 40 men remain at the detention centre as it enters its 20th year at a cost of $13 million per detainee. It's organised by the group Witness Against Torture. I spoke at the weekend with one of the group, Richard Shrosinski, and he talked about the skills and knowledge he brought to the group, where his actions for peace had centred on prior to working with Witness Against Torture. At the time of the World Trade Center disaster, uh, I was working in downtown Manhattan. I was a manager in a hospital, in a hospital clinic. And so when 9-11 happened, I was very much involved in working right there at Ground Zero day after day, week after week for, for months. That was my initial exposure to the entire incident that brought about Guantanamo. thought about this a little bit. The experience was that while I was working in Manhattan in New York, Everyone around me was very focused on, well, initially recovery, but then dealing with the disaster and fixing things. Uh, Very positive. We were trying to be very hopeful about the whole situation. However, after the initial disaster, when I got back home and out to outlying areas, I realized that there was this growing sense of vengeance in the country, and that, that disturbed me. In terms of of your question specifically, skills, so I I was a manager, I was an organizer, I helped to send people to places where their services were needed, so that when I joined with Witness, I I think I I brought those skills, but most of all, I think I brought a passion to see Guantanamo closed, to see justice, and to see the men who, by and large, the overwhelming majority were entirely innocent. That was very disturbing to me to see innocent men in prison without charge, without justification, without reason, without any 
recourse. Were you there right at the beginning of witness? No, I was not. I initially, I was a typical middle-class, middle-aged citizen, and initially I started trying to contact my congressmen and my legislative representatives and, you know, writing letters, calling and saying, what is going on? This is not okay. What can you do to stop it? And this kind of thing. It was after a couple of years of frustration and realizing that as an individual, I couldn't do very much that I searched around on the internet and then ran into Witness Against Torture at a demonstration that they were doing in the vicinity of the UN in about 2000 and 2006. I do know that the organization, it was a number of Catholic workers who when President Bush said, anybody who thinks we're not being nice to those men in Guantanamo can come here and look for themselves, they decided to take him up on his offer. So in 2005, they organized a trip of 25 people who actually went to Cuba because it was not permissible for Americans to travel to Cuba. Um, I believe they went through Mexico, but they organized a trip and they went. Of course, when they got to Guantanamo, they were not let in, but that became the, uh, the impetus performing an organization that would work to close and bring justice to the whole Guantanamo situation. I uh, I believe I, it was about 2006 that I was searching for other groups, other people who might be interested in doing something about Guantanamo that I ran into them, and that's when I got involved, and I was part of the organizing team planning actions every year to try and do something. What were you doing back in 2006 when you first joined? What was the first action you were part of? I think that would have been the first year that we acted specifically on the anniversary of Guantanamo. Up until then, there were demonstrations on random dates, um, mostly in New York City, but some in Washington. But that first year of planning was in Washington, D.C., And what we were doing was to go into federal court. What we actually did is we read off the names of the men that we knew about who were detained in Guantanamo, asking for habeas corpus, for due process for these men. Uh, And about, I think about 70 people were arrested at that initial demonstration. Now you say the men you knew about, how did you find out? You know what? I At that point, I don't know where those names came from. In the first couple of years, names were not made public. Uh, but then at some point, they were. And I, one of the organizers had gotten names, and we each were assigned a name that we were supposed to say out loud. And there was a uh, a box, I remember, in the court that if someone had a petition for the court, you could put it into that box. And one by one, we dropped the names of the individual detainees into that box seeking habeas corpus. So there's all those arrests. What were you arrested for? Some kind of obstruction. I myself was not arrested at that time. These were the early days of activism for me, and I, I was not willing to get arrested. So when the guard said, move, I moved. But others remained. And they were arrested for simple disorderly charges of obstruction. Going through those years, what have been the main 
areas of activism. I know you stand outside or kneel down with the orange suits on, chained. How long has that been going for? Well, the first demonstration then in Washington, D.C. was in 2007, and it's been every year in January, on January 11th since then. Uh, actions have involved fasting. They have involved, there was an action at the Supreme Court, which uh, I think we're very proud of, where we had individuals inside and outside, and it was a coordinated action where people outside climbed up the stairs and stood in front of the Supreme Court and unfurled a banner while people inside pulled off their outer clothing and they had the orange jumpsuits and they had signs. That was a, a, a pretty significant action. Uh, there was another time when we were surrounded the uh, federal court and just by standing in front of the doors, we managed to um, stop business for a limited period of time. We've had demonstrations at the Department of Justice. I'm trying to think. We've had many processions, processions to the White House, processions to the Supreme Court. They vary depending on what the status uh, and what the political scene was at the time. The last several years, we focused on the White House, where clearly there's been an extremely unfavorable administration and we've also begun to increase actions in recent years to try to get a message across to congress uh, i myself have become sort of responsible for arranging meetings with members in congress and some of the committees that deal with uh, judicial issues uh, that deal with foreign affairs that deal with national security to try to promote some resolution of the, the remaining, the situation with the remaining men in Guantanamo. And what sort of a reception do you get when you meet these people? Oh, interesting. When we have meetings with congressional leaders, we have not met, I, I have to admit, I have not tried to arrange meetings with the opposition, if you will. Um, they've all been with people who were at least potentially sympathetic. Um, and so we would discuss strategies and possible tracks. And initially, I remember uh, many of the Congress people saying, well, I would act on this, but I'm not hearing from my constituents. So then part of our role became to try and stir up a uh, response from people around the country to contact their congressperson and say that they want Guantanamo closed. It's not okay to just leave these men locked up indefinitely without charge, without trial, without due process. So that leads right up to the present day. Now we have a new administration, and uh, unfortunately, this year with the pandemic, we did not gather in Washington. People gathered remotely, and we did try to contact members in Congress and some of the committees. Have not been too, too successful because January 6th was that, uh, well, what some people are calling an insurrection at the Capitol. So it has been very, very difficult this year in particular to try to get through to anybody in Congress. And so I, I've been organizing meetings with a coalition of, of groups to try and see what we can do going forward. For instance, we have a uh, an organizational letter that 110 organizations have signed on to that is going to be delivered to 
uh, the Biden White House in about a week or so. And we're really just beginning to organize in the in the present context. Are you aware of how many men have passed through Guantanamo Bay and how many have died in there? I'm not certain of the numbers, but approximately 800 men have passed through the gates of Guantanamo. Uh, I believe currently nine have actually died there, and there are currently 40 men left five of whom have been repeatedly cleared for release. They're completely innocent based on reports by every agency of the government that's had input into this. And the others are either um, have been charged and are awaiting some kind of trial, but the vast majority have never been charged. They're just sitting there. Have you or members of your group been able to speak to any of the men who have been in that jail, that prison camp? Only those who have been released. Yes. We do have contact with several who are in Britain, in um, Mauritania, and several other countries. Obviously, none of them have ever been released to the United States. Um, but we have had contact. And, and some are, for instance, they're on my email mailing list. We, we do stay in touch, and they make suggestions. They've made appearances. We have had congressional briefings where we have been able to um, – and when I say we, I have to be clear here. This is a coalition of groups. For instance, Amnesty International has been very helpful, and some other national international groups have been very helpful to try and do some of these events. Uh, but we've had, for instance, congressional briefings with where some of the former detainees would speak over a, a Skype type of setup, um, and they would speak to congressional staff and educate them about the situation because it's been 20 years now. Some of these staff people that we deal with were just children, and they have no idea of what's been going on. So it's come a full circle. What can you tell me about the stories that you've been told by those men of the conditions that they suffered in that prison? Oh, well, I think there have been phases to the prison in Guantanamo. Um, some of the men there have been there a long time. Initially, when they were picked up, I don't know, it's hard to describe. They're the most horrific types of situations where, you know, some soldiers will come out and grab you on the street and throw a blindfold or a hood over your head and suddenly tie your arms and your legs and, and throw you in the back of a truck. And then the, the next thing you were in, the, in an airplane, you don't even know where you are or where you're going. Others, there was the whole scandal at the Abu Ghraib prison where the men were so horrifically abused. Many of the initial detainees were tortured, horribly suspended. It's just horrible treatment. That, to a large extent, has changed, particularly under the Obama administration when torture was at least officially outlawed and, and they began to be treated more like well, let's say, you know, prisoners of war, I wouldn't say that that they're consistent with the Geneva Conventions yet because the fact that they're held there without any kind of official designation is still tortuous, but at least they're not being physically abused and, and the physical conditions of their confinement have improved. What about the staff? What did you learn about how working there has impacted on them? 
Oh, again, that has changed too. Initially, when they're all just universally considered terrorists and horrible people, the staff were abusive. They were, um, how shall I say, they just had absolutely no respect for the human beings that they were holding. As time went on, uh, relationships developed. We have several, there are examples on the internet, there have been books written of individual detainees and individual guards who would enter into a relationship and they would discover that the other person is a, is a human being. Um, and, and those relationships have been maintained. Some of those people have appeared at some of the actions and the briefings that we've held in Washington and for Congress. I think one of the things that strikes me time and time again is how the detainees themselves, these Muslim men, are so gentle, so forgiving of what has been done to them. It just, it, it's, it, it really blows me away. It, it's hard to, um, to adequately explain that, but, but they are extremely forgiving and just waiting for justice, just hoping for justice. Although I, it's important to say that some of these men, I think, have begun to um, to lose their minds, literally. Uh, some of the attorneys come back. The attorneys do meet with them from time to time. There have been very few attorney meetings in the last uh, year or so with the pandemic situation, but they've come back with reports that their particular client is on hunger strike, he's lost weight, he's very ill, he's losing his mind. So... It, 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 it's 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 horrible. <laughs> I run out of words sometimes. What rights do those prisoners have inside Guantanamo, and why are they not part of the legal jurisdiction of the U.S.? Is it because it's on Cuban land? Is that how the U.S. gets around that? That yes, uh, in short, yes. They are not prisoners of war. They have not, because they are classified as detainees, they apparently do not fall under the Geneva Conventions, number one. Secondly, the United States set up this prison on foreign soil or on a, a foreign base, let's put it that way, so that it does not come under any kind of U.S. law. Uh, the Supreme Court has ruled several times that 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 is in fact true, that they do not, that the typical rights that would apply to a prisoner in the United States do not apply to these individuals. And that has been part of what has made it so very, very difficult. Secondly, those that have been charged have been, were under the, the military commission system, which was specifically set up to try these individuals by the military, not by the civil system, not by regular judges or lawyers, but by this military system that was expressly set up for the purpose. And that system has gone nowhere. Lawyers, their attorneys have objected to certain procedures. And, and so it's, it's in limbo. There are no active trials currently going on. Five of them have been repeatedly cleared for release. But there's been no action to bring that release about. And the previous administration that just recently ended said they were not going to do anything about it. All the trial, all the uh, procedures, the office that was supposed to be 
resettling men that were supposed to be released was closed down. So there's been absolutely no activity. Uh, from the little bits of news we've gotten this past year from attorneys and those who have been there is that the men are are very much without hope. Um, I, I think that may have changed since the change in in the administrations in the United States, but they're pretty pretty beaten down. They're elderly. They're suffering from many health problems that Guantanamo is not set up to handle, and some of them are in very bad shape physically and mentally. What access do they have to medical care? There is basic medical care, but, uh, in fact, the, the individuals who have died, some of them, for instance, had cancer, and there was, there was no advanced cancer treatment available at Guantanamo. However, it was under the Bush administration. Well, I shouldn't say. I'm, I may not be certain about the dates. But Congress did pass laws that forbade any of these men being transferred to the United States, either for judicial proceedings or for any kind of medical treatment or for any reason for that matter. So the access to medical care is somewhat limited. It's a military base. There is basic medical care. But if someone gets very seriously ill in the military who is there, they get shipped to the United States. But that does not happen for the detainees. Red Cross does make, has in the past made visits periodically to check on their situation. But my understanding is that since the pandemic, I don't believe there's been a single Red Cross visit this year or this past year. Has anyone in your group been able to write letters to these men to be passed through with their lawyers, anything like that? Do they have any contact with the outside world? So in recent years, only recently, uh, they, as I said, the Red Cross was given access. And along with that, they do receive mail. They can receive packages from home. I understand that occasionally they are even able to uh, have video visits with their, their own families. Many of our members and people throughout the country do send letters to individual detainees. Some of them are not allowed to receive letters. I assume those are the ones who have been charged and are awaiting trial. But uh, as far as I know, and I have no way to verify this, as far as I know, they do receive letters that people send them, and those letters are not censored, again, as far as I know. But there aren't replies coming back? Oh, no, no, no. I've never had a reply. There is a group in Great Britain and England, uh, Reprieve, which is very active, and I, they might have other information, but our experience here in the States is that we, we never get any letters back. You now have a new administration, the Biden administration. Are you looking to do things a little bit differently with this administration to try and get well, more success? First of all, this administration has come out on record as saying that they want to close one time. So we're feeling very hopeful. That administration is officially, what, nine days old. We were in touch. We sent letters prior to the inauguration of, of Joe Biden to his team indicating that, that we wanted to see Guantanamo closed. There were recommendations made, again, from 
legal groups and groups like Amnesty International that made recommendations for how Guantanamo could be closed, how it could be closed even without the uh, cooperation of Congress, because uh, you may know that the while the House of Representatives it has a majority of Democrats who are favorable to closing Guantanamo, the Senate is still in a tie situation, and it's very difficult to move things through the Senate. But there are ways that the administration can act unilaterally and through executive order to clear some of the men and to get them to other countries. There has been a group that is organizing, and we're trying to figure out various tactics that we can use to try to pressure the administration. The administration is pretty busy, I would think, with all the issues from the previous administration, the climate change situation, the the issues that have developed with NATO and and the European Union, so many other things, uh, that Guantanamo is probably pretty low on the list. So we're looking to try and and move it up. Uh, as I said, I've been in touch with some members of Congress trying to arrange some meetings and things like that. But this is we're really just beginning this new phase. But didn't the Obama regime, when it came in, say similar things that they wanted it closed? They did, and from oh, I'm trying to remember. I I can't remember now what the numbers were, but there were maybe. Uh, 100 or 160 men in Guantanamo then, many of them were released. They were cleared for release, and then they were released and uh, either repatriated to their own country, depending on what it was, or to other countries. Deals were made, and, and there was a tremendous amount of progress. But we reached a point where there were 40 men at the end of the administration, and those 40 men are still sitting there. Planning for the future? Uh, Yeah, the plan is to try to push the administration to as quickly as possible to either release the men and repatriate them, to reopen the office that was responsible for finding places for the men to be sent to and making arrangements for their return to, to normal life, or if in the case that somebody really is responsible for some of the actions of 9-11 really is somehow subject to being charged as a terrorist to, to make those charges, bring them to trial, or if not, then to release them. So that is the goal. And as I said, we're, we're just beginning to try and develop strategies to do that. And to close this base and give the land back to Cuba. That is a separate issue. Um, we have not dealt with that. I know there are those who have called for it, but that's not something we're dealing with. Okay, Richard, well, final words? I would thank you for the opportunity to speak on this. Uh, one of my goals is obviously to draw attention to the issue. I think it is simply unconscionable to take anyone for any reason and just lock them away to deny them liberty and not provide any due process for them to appeal or to change the situation. I'm not sure who your audience is, but if there's anyone in your audience that cares about this, they can get in touch with me. They can get in touch with Witness Against Torture. They can get in touch with the American administration and say that this is, even from the international point of view, a horror, and that the sooner this is resolved, the better. That would be my final word on that. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I've been speaking with Richard 
Shreshinsky from Witness Against Torture. Do look them up if that's something that you're interested in. Witness Against Torture. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. How many times have you visited a supermarket where cut flowers are displayed for all to see, usually as you enter the store? Well, maybe we need to think again about what we buy, and not only about the flowers from the supermarket, but perhaps from the local florist. This concern stems from a Weekly Times report titled The Risk of Cut Flowers Dipped in Glycosate. Bob Phelps is the Executive Director of the Gene Ethics Network. He read the report in the Weekly Times recently and is with me to explain what it might mean for our health. Flowers that we bring home, the roses, chrysanthemums and carnations in particular, may be imported and may have been dipped in Roundup for at least 20 minutes. The Australian government is requiring for quarantine reasons that uh, all cut flowers coming in from overseas, and there are 250 million stems imported each year, that they be dipped in this way in Roundup. And the glyphosate, of course, which is the active ingredient in Roundup, has got huge question marks over it uh, about its ability to induce non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Then There are now um, many cases, particularly in North America, some 120,000 cases on the go of people who are suffering from that cancer. It's a word of caution, really, and I think particularly for those who are handling a lot of flowers, people like florists need to be made aware that uh, they may be uh, substantially exposed to a toxic chemical every time they um, handle import an imported flower. Local flower growers, of course, are um, asking for country of origin labelling, but whether or not that will be given to them, uh, who can say at this stage? Under the free trade deals that our government's been doing, they don't generally require labelling of uh, products like flowers and other things coming in from overseas. Are you aware of how or what percentage of flowers that florists deal with that are actually imported? Well, the ones that are mentioned in the Weekly Times story are particularly roses, chrysanthemums and carnations. I'd say that a large number of those are produced in countries like Kenya, Colombia and Ecuador, where, of course, people are paid very little for their work, particularly women in those toxic industries. It may be that they can undercut uh, local production as well. So when you see them cheap in the local florist or the supermarket, it may be that they're toxic as well. And it is something that I think that people should start looking out for. Uh, as far as the marketers of Roundup are concerned, uh, Bayer Crop Science was reported in the story as saying this particular use of Roundup isn't registered as a use pattern in Australia and that the product shouldn't be used in this manner. The government is requiring the flowers to be dipped before they're freighted into Australia and then they go straight to the supermarkets. Uh, here the government is well out of step with the current regulations, as uh, Bayer has pointed out, and is out of step with the industry as well. 
I think there are some serious questions to be asked of uh, the Federal Department of Agriculture about why this is uh, being required. They claim that it's so that you can't use those stems to graft onto local rootstock and make a, a new plant which might transmit some exotic viral or other disease into the local production. But I think we need to think very seriously about whether that's um, doing anything to prevent the problem as it claims to do. The florists wouldn't be aware of this problem, would they? Well, you'd hope that some message would have gone out from the story at least to warn them, but I think that a general warning uh, needs to be issued because uh, if florists are handling glyphosate-polluted flowers every day of their working lives, then this will be the kind of exposure that has led to the 120,000 claims in the USA where people who are spraying and using Roundup products uh, to kill weeds uh, on a daily basis are now suffering from non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. The evidence is so strong that tens of millions of dollars have been awarded to those against the um, Bayer and Monsanto companies. Well, Bob, how are consumers to know whether the roses, chrysanthemums and carnations they buy are imported or grown here in Australia? Well, at the moment, the um, uh, Australian flower growers are um, beating the drum for country of origin labelling, and that would be some indication. But I, I um, think even more than that, that these flowers, when they're sold, uh, should carry some sort of warning as well. Of course, there's a great resistance in our our chemicals regulator, the Australian Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority, to flagging these things as well because we do know that um, some residues of chemicals end up in the food supply as well, so we're putting them down our throats as well as um, handling them on products. And I just think that this is a reason to be demanding that the whole regulatory system for agricultural and veterinary chemicals should be cleaned up. And indeed, at the moment, there is a review of the AgVet chemical system going on. People can engage with that. There's a draft report out on which the review panel has asked for comments by the 26th of February. But the problem with this review panel is that it's chaired by a person who's got conflicts of interest. He is also the chair of the Agricultural Biotechnology Council of Australia, which is in the business of promoting agricultural biotechnology and just incidentally CropLife, which represents 85% of the companies that produce agricultural chemicals and 95% of those producing genetically manipulated crop seed. CropLife also supports this um, Ag Biotech Council, of which the chair of the panel is the chairperson uh, as well. So... There's a whole mix here of conflicts of interest going on. The draft report that the AgVet Chemical Review has put out is um, very industry biased, very deregulatory in its focus so that um, there would be less, not more, regulation of agricultural pesticides and veterinary chemicals in the future. I just think that's not in the public interest at all. The main thing that Genethics and a number of other groups are calling for, in fact, is a re the reinstatement of a review scheme. The Pesticides 
re-registration and reassessment scheme that was cancelled by the incoming Liberal government in 2014 with the connivance of the ALP. Uh, it was a, an excellent system set up by the Gillard government. It was due to come into force, as I said, on the 1st of July 2014. And as soon as he became the minister, Barnaby Joyce delivered his promise to the agrochemical industry by cancelling it uh, with the support of uh, Joel Fitzgibbon, who was then the shadow minister for agriculture, who has just incidentally resigned in the last couple of months from the from the ALP's front bench, their shadow ministry, because of his disagreements with um, ALP policy over um, agricultural chemicals and also, of course, over climate change. He's very conservative. He's um, a rural representative from New South Wales on these matters. His position is not much different from the National Party, which, of course, has a very retrograde view on all these issues as well. Just staying with those imported flowers for one more moment, there could be other pests coming in on those flowers, even though they are dipped in Roundup. Well, yes, there is the issue then of um, viral diseases or insects. Quarantine is an issue. Of course, invasive pests are a constant issue. So we see that um, at the moment the Invasive Species Council, which concerns itself with keeping things like the fire ants, which have invaded Australia, and invasive weeds out of the country. Unfortunately, the Invasive Species Council, which is also a non-government organisation and advocacy group like ourselves, has recently put out a report supporting the use of glyphosate in Australia as well. Landcare uses it extensively. They do this uh, in order to... Um, control weeds, exotic weeds in Australia and the invasive species people are arguing that um, glyphosate, the main constituent in Roundup herbicide, is a key tool in their methods for controlling invasive weeds. We're potentially in a situation of conflict with them because uh, we're, along with the National Toxics Network and other groups, strong advocates of getting Roundup out of weed control systems and our own gene ethics advocacy, of course, has been arguing, particularly to local councils, that they should get rid of the use of Roundup. We've had some success there. Uh, for instance, in Melbourne, Yarra Council and also Maribyrnong Council have now phased out uh, the use of Roundup as a weed control measure. In, in Sydney, South Sydney and Fairfield have also done the same. And in Western Australia, there are several councils that have either banned Roundup from being sprayed around schools, around uh, kindergartens, on local streets. We're pushing on with that campaign to get rid of Roundup in favour of uh, other means like weed steamers. Uh, there's a, an organic product, Pelagonic Acid. Some people even... <laughs> The um, Eastern Freeway here in Melbourne are using goats on very steep land in order to control weeds. So there are a number of systems out there for not using chemicals, particularly where humans are going to be, humans and animals are going to be exposed to this uh, toxic and hazardous um, chemical that we now know uh, is a trigger for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. But this Invasive Species Council still insists that 
they have to have glyphosate because other measures won't work. Have they tried other measures? Uh, they're an advocacy group and I don't believe that they're personally in the business of controlling weeds themselves. That's up to groups like Landcare, like the local councils and other land managers like farmers. And they're saying that these groups that manage Australia, the continent of Australia, which of course is a very large and complicated business, they're arguing that uh, as a matter of policy, uh, Roundup and its active ingredient glyphosate, of which incidentally there are over 500 different formulations registered with our Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority for use in Australia. Over 500, pretty unbelievable. Who knows what other junk is in those mixtures? They're saying that this is essential for uh, managing those, those weeds, uh, the invasive weeds that they're so concerned about. Well, I think personally that, um, and as a matter of policy for gene ethics, that um, protecting public health and safety is um, at least as important as controlling those plants, which are only classified weeds, of course, because um, they happen to turn up in places where they're inconvenient, like in uh, vegetable patches or in fields where farmers want to... Um, keep them completely weed-free. Yes, there's some management issues, but there are other ways of doing it. And I think spraying a toxic chemical uh, is not the best option and is one that we should look at phasing out. Bearing in mind that um, not only have a, a number of our councils now banned Roundup, but a number of countries around the world are in the process of doing the same. And we expect that it will be totally banned in the European Union, for example, from 2023. It's being phased out there by several countries and a number of them already have bans on the use of Roundup. Looking to the viruses and bats, they're getting blamed for everything at the moment. The scientists are in Wuhan at the moment. What do you believe is the reason why bats are spreading viruses and are they spreading viruses? Yes, well, they're a very particular case, some um, bats. They're enormously well adapted, bearing in mind that they are related to other mammals. They're a mammal species. They're the only flying mammal. There are a large number of different species. They have a long life lifespan for a small animal like that. They're not prone to cancers, and they seem to have this exceptional ability to which has been developed, of course, over probably the experts saying 64 million years of adaptive evolution, that they've been adapting themselves to the viruses and the other pathogens that are in the environment. So they're quite resistant to diseases that we're not resistant to. The main point out of the discussion about this now is that as human beings are... Um, interfering more and more with our ecosystems by chopping down forests, other um, ecological destruction as a result of the enormous number of people in the world, of course, that there are many disease outbreaks and they're expecting more over the next few decades. So COVID-19 may be just the first of, of several. Indeed, we're reminded even here in Australia of the Hendra virus, which was transferred to bats from bats to horses a couple of decades ago 
As a result of that, a horse trainer died. A number of horses became infected and were destroyed. Now all the horses in Australia have to be vaccinated against the Hendra virus. So it is under control, but it's another local example of the kind of uh, transfer of pathogens from bats. This was a case where the bats were roosting in trees in the horse paddocks. Um, their droppings were where the horses were feeding. The virus transferred into the horses and then into the human population. So it's that kind of transmission, that mode of transmission, that uh, means of the bat virus getting into the human population in China that that research team is now looking for. There are a number of other examples over the last several decades, of course, things like Ebola, which has been a terrible scourge in West Africa. There was the Marburg virus, which came out of European labs in uh, around 1967, a number of others. Uh, we've got to start taking seriously our global ecological systems are bouncing back on humans for the things that we're doing to them, uh, for the destruction that we're wreaking on the land and on the sea. We're arch polluters and destroyers, and uh, nature bounces back and can take a toll on our health as well, as we're seeing at the moment. And people can denigrate the bats all they like, but the fact is that they are so important to the whole ecology of Australia and many other countries as well. Yes, of course, that's exactly correct. They're um, pollinators of, um, of crops. They um, interact, of course, with insects a lot, which are our pollinators as well. They're a, a key species in the regulation of the ecology, and so eliminating them is not an option as well. We're going to have to improve our behaviour, not theirs. This research that's going on in Wuhan uh, needs to be of course, it's important to do it there to identify what the mode of transmission was. Uh, was it tourists and researchers going into bat caves? Was it the animals uh, being sold in food markets? Or indeed, was it research being done in the Wuhan laboratories, which American researchers were also involved in, into coronaviruses because they were interested in knowing whether or not these viruses would transmit to, um, to human beings. They were, as is happening in a lot of laboratories around the world, doing a class of research called gain-of-function research. And when we talk about gain-of-function, we're actually talking about making these viruses more virulent, more ready to jump species in order to try to develop defences against them. So it is just possible that as a result of that research being carried out in Wuhan that something might have come out of a lab as well. So there are a number of different possibilities about where this might have come from. It's going to take quite some time, according to the research team, to even get a preliminary handle on where it might come from. And meanwhile, we've got, um, of course, Trump was calling it the China disease, uh, Morrison and the World Health Organization were saying we've got to explore Wuhan. But what we need to remember is that many countries are all, all doing this kind of research, including, incidentally, a laboratory down at Geelong, right here in, in Melbourne or in Victoria. 
the Australian Animal Health Laboratories, which last April was um, renamed the Australian Centre for Disease Preparedness in recognition that humans, are, as well as animals, are involved. Uh, that laboratory, by its own admission on its website, says that it contains some of the most deadly diseases in the world and people who go in there are um, absolutely suited up like they are astronauts. Some of the research is being funded by the US Department of Defence, the DARPA, which is their scientific research arm of the US military and the Department of um, Energy in the USA. There are a whole heap of questions that need to be asked about our behaviour and the behaviour of these high uh, security laboratories around the world, some of which, of course, are also doing bioweapons research, despite the fact that there's a, a treaty banning bioweapons research on the pretext of doing defence, defensive research. A number of countries, including USA, Russia, China and others, uh, are um, still researching bioweapons, which are diseases for killing or disabling human beings and, and their uh, productive systems. So uh, there are a whole lot of questions that need to be asked, and we're saying to government, get on with asking those broader questions as well as what happened in Wuhan. It's such a risky business, isn't it, though, playing around with viruses? pathogenic microorganism is going to be risky. Um, that, that's true, and um, there's no easy answer to all this. Um, I mean, we do need still to be listening to the science, trying to figure out what's going to happen, because I think we're um, in danger of leaving a legacy of um, potential disease entities for future generations, as well as this one. It's great that the world is now attuned to the idea that uh, we need to respond when there's an, an outbreak of disease and regard it as potentially global in its reach, not just a local problem for some group of people like those in West Africa or the people in Queensland in the case of Hendra. It's got to be dealt with on a much broader scale because, of course, globalisation, as we've seen in the COVID-19 case, has created the circumstances where people are traveling uh, so extensively internationally that these things spread. And we shouldn't in all this either forget HIV, of course, which was a sexually transmitted pathogen, but nonetheless incredibly destructive, having killed something like 32 million people so far. There were 52 million, of course, in the uh, outbreak of the flu after the First World War and at the moment we're up around I think 4 million as far as COVID's concerned so it's early days for this particular global pandemic as well. One thing that we're doing is um, joining with other groups around the world initiated by the Organic Consumers Association in the USA interestingly a group of scientific legal and policy experts are calling for a global ban on the research that I mentioned, the gain-of-function research, where the increase in the virulence, pathogenicity, and also the transmission of viruses to try to find cures and prevention needs to be thoroughly reviewed and, in our view, uh, stopped. I mean, it has been, among scientific experts, a concern for 
at least a decade, and many of them have also been calling uh, for a ban on gain-of-function research, and I think it's now time for civil society to take a stand as well and to say to our policymakers, this is not something you should be doing because it can go wrong and it may even be, have been the uh, source of the SARS-CoV-2, uh, which has caused the COVID-19 outbreak. We need a lot more precaution in the field of uh, this kind of research. And thanks to Bob Phelps, the Executive Director of the Gene Ethics Network, and we'll hear more from Bob on the program next week. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Free Palestine Melbourne is holding an online forum exploring the implications of a number of Arab nations normalising relations with Israel while it continues to occupy Palestine and oppress the Palestinian people. The forum will explore the implications for justice for Palestinians, for geopolitics and peace in the region, and for the expanding gulf between autocratic rulers and their people. Speakers include Dr. Khaled Hroub from Northwestern University in Qatar, Dr. Ahmed Jamil Azam from Berizet University, and Palestinian and local author, playwright and activist, Dr. Samah Sabawi. Join us the 10th of February, Wednesday night at 8pm. Register at fpmelbourne.org forward slash events. That's fpmelbourne.org forward slash events. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. We should never underestimate the capacity for cruelty, specifically for asylum seekers and refugees here in Australia, as people were celebrating the release of a number from imprisonment in hotels last December, the news that a secret detention centre had been established in suburban Melbourne. In fact, in the property known as the Best Western Faulkner Suite and Service Apartments at 1164 Sydney Road, Faulkner. Some believe as early as June, July last year. And if there's one detention centre secret, how many more are there? I spoke with City of Moreland Councillor Sue Bolton, put forward the, the words devious, cruel, about this latest incarnation by the federal government in Faulkner. It's hard to think of a description which really indicates how horrible the government is towards refugees and some of it is based in secrecy as well. Yeah, I just ran out of words to say how cruel this whole process is. I mean, I heard someone describe it as the government being a perpetrator of violence against refugees and that is as good a term as any. But, like, it's sheer torture and it's just stripped away years and years of people's lives. Like, it's just, you know, people's lives in limbo for eight years. It's, and in some cases longer. It's really is truly horrific. And they've now sort of gone 
down another step, haven't they, that they're having secret motel rooms and hotel rooms until someone in the refugee action groups or something finds these places. These men are just languishing in rooms and a room and nobody knows where they are. Well, that's right. So it's come to my attention last year and then I had it, then it was confirmed by the Commonwealth Ombudsman that a motel in Faulkner in the Moreland area, just near the Faulkner Cemetery, has now been declared an alternative place of detention, which is what they declared Kangaroo Point Hotel in uh, Brisbane as, the Mantra Hotel in Melbourne as, and now the Park Hotel in Melbourne as, as an alternative place of detention. I mean, the council didn't even know about it when I inquired with the council what they knew and when they knew what. So the council found out about it through me and I found out about it through a refugee uh, activist of many, many years. It makes me wonder how many other motels have become detention centres in Melbourne or in any other city in Australia because it was done in such secrecy. It's not only holding refugees, it's also holding people on 501 visas, which means people who you know, might have come here as babies even and done a little bit of jail time and are facing being deported. In some cases, they've got grandkids and great-grandkids in Australia uh, and others. But it's, yeah, I think this is alarming because it means that you don't know who is being housed or detained in these places. But what does the law say about the land? Surely it's it's the council land and they weren't told. It's through a private business and the government. So at the moment I'm sort of pursuing that with the council to try and find out if the hotel has breached its planning permit. I think the Darabin Council checked that out with the Mantra Hotel and found that the planning laws don't prohibit a hotel from doing this. You know, if the planning laws don't prohibit a hotel from becoming a place of detention, then I think the planning laws need to be changed. And that's where local councils don't have total freedom. I mean, they've got freedom to do a certain number of things, but at the end of the day needs to be the state government that changes changes its planning laws to stop hotels from doing this. At the moment, it's looking like you can't stop a hotel from becoming a little prison, which is outrageous. Is there any indication at all whether the state government knows what's going on in these places and how many others there are, or do you believe it's between private business and the federal government? The state government does because... Well, especially because the state government has been authorising the use of a huge number of police uh, for protests at the Mantra Hotel and the Park Hotel. That means also that three separate councils, Darabin, Moreland and Melbourne City Council, will have been talking to the state government about the planning laws uh, and you know how a hotel can be used as a place of detention for refugees. What I'm thinking about is foreknowledge of this? Yeah, well, I don't know if the state government received foreknowledge or if the Home Affairs is able to just do this without notifying anyone. It's quite possible that 
Home Affairs just does it without notifying anybody. Um, but, of course, later on, the state government would have become aware of it because as soon as we were aware of um, Medivac refugees being imprisoned in these hotels, the refugee movement began protesting. You know, pretty quickly the government would have become aware of it. But, yeah, I don't know. It's It's quite possible... Home Affairs, which is a totally secretive organisation in that how it deals with a, a lot of refugee issues, uh, they may think they've got the power to set these up totally secretly. What do you now know of what's happening in Faulkner at the motel? The only reason I haven't organised a protest outside the motel in Faulkner is because our last con- our contact with a refugee who'd been medevaced from Nauru, who was in the Faulkner Detention Centre, he left that centre. He was so miserable there that he applied to go back to Mitre, which is the detention centre in Broadmeadows. And I think one of the reasons why he, I mean, apart from being in detention, I mean, everyone's miserable in detention, but I think one of the reasons why he was extra miserable was at least in the main detention centre, you know, people able to socialise with each other to some degree, whereas in Faulkner there are seven service departments. It's not like the Mantra or the Park Hotel where there's corridors and some level of mixing between people, like at mealtimes and certain times. Um, For the people in the service departments, there's a you know, totally separated units. There's no common areas or anything. And so they can't communicate across the apartments. They don't even necessarily know who's in the other apartments. So this particular man who'd been on Nauru almost seven years or seven or eight years, he was in an apartment with two other men. One was a Turkish man on a 501 visa, came here as a child, facing deportation. Another one was an international student. But those were the only other people that he saw day in, day out. They had the bedrooms upstairs, then a very small kitchen, diner, land room sort of area, and then a two-metre by two-metre square courtyard. They didn't get to see anyone else other than the people they were detained with or the two other people they were detained with and the security guards. That was their life. That was this man's life. And he was so miserable that he applied to go back to the main detention centre. We believe there's another couple who were on Nauru who are there, but we don't know anyone else who's there. So at the moment, we haven't organised any protests there because usually when the refugee movement mobilises, we've got links with someone inside who welcomes our protests. Does anyone know exactly when these people came and do they all come together? Is that the situation or have they been bringing them in in troops and traps? I suspect the latter. Don't know when exactly it was set up. I do know that there were rumours about it uh, amongst people being detained at MITRE Detention Centre. Then one of the refugee activists got a definite 
someone passed on the phone number of someone to her and she made contact with this particular man. That's how we really found out about it. And then this um, activist then contacted the Commonwealth Ombudsman who didn't know anything about the detention centre being there, but went and inquired and confirmed that it was an alternative place of detention. We don't really know any more than that. And, you know, I would be... Yeah, I, we don't know any more than that. We found out really because there are rumours amongst detainees at MITRE. There are a whole lot of people living in Faulkner who totally support refugees who would be keen to be part of some sort of action outside the detention centre calling for people to be released and welcoming them to Faulkner. I'm sure there also could be others of a more racist viewpoint who might not want the detention centre because they don't want refugees. You know, that was the case in Broadmeadows when the MITRE, the detention centre there, was constructed, where the campaign against it was half people who supported refugees, so didn't want the detention centre built because they supported refugees, and half of it was people who didn't want the detention centre because they didn't want refugees. I can imagine there would be that kind of split in Faulkner, but we would certainly want to organise something of people saying refugees are welcome in Faulkner, but we haven't done that simply because we haven't got strong links inside. Well, finally, Sue, the real concern now is that we don't know how many others they've got planned where they might be. It's obviously going to be places where the government hopes that people won't um, be able to congregate because they'll be out of Melbourne. Is that the fear now? I would definitely have that fear because, you know, this detention centre in Faulkner, in this motel, was set up totally secretly and it makes me wonder how many hotels or other venues of some kind have been turned into pop-up detention centres through the suburbs of any of Melbourne or any other city or even regional areas. You know, this is disgraceful. This reminds me of the US government when it was carting people off to secret locations for torture all over the world in its so-called war against war and terror. I think that's extremely worrying um, that. A government department has that power to do something like this in secret because it means you know nothing about what's going on. I did get a motion through Morning Council just before Christmas which was about looking at the planning laws to see if the motel had breached its permit, um, seeking state government support to change the planning laws so that motels can't do this and become detention centres, but also for Morning Council to be allowed to do a welfare check with the people who are detained inside. And, of course, all of that would only be done with the, you know, the Home Affairs Department would have to give permission for a welfare check to happen. But if that could happen, that would be really good because we'd know exactly what sorts of people are being detained inside and, and what, you know, their state of welfare. So I think that was important to get that through in council. But, yeah, I'm worried about this, you know, how many of these secret detention centres there are all over Australia. Well, it sounds like an issue that's not going to go away in a hurry. Thanks, Sue. No worries. Thanks, Jan.
City of Moreland Councillor Sue Bolton. It's now or never for climate action. So join the National Sustainable Living Festival this February for a program showcasing cutting-edge solutions to the ecological and social challenges of our times. Be part of the change and join the sustainability movement with a month of workshops, talks, demonstrations, artworks, exhibitions, films and live performances. It's time to reset to climate safe. For the full program, go to slf.org.au. The National Sustainable Living Festival is a 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to... Fill in the dots, you know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, fill in the... 3CR Community Radio, you got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 8.55am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by... By Neil Mitchell. Next on Tuesday Hometime, activist and broadcaster Jacob Greck, and more recently out and about with his Renegade Solidarity sound system, which we'll hear about a bit later. But first, Jacob, you and many others have been supporting Julian right from the word go. Back in court in London in early January, what are your thoughts on the result of that? Well, I'm disappointed, but not surprised. What happened was the judge basically agreed with every point the United States government's lawyers made and disagreed with every point that Julian's legal team made. So while it was happening and we were getting live tweets of the, of the judgment, we were expecting him to be immediately transported to Guantanamo Bay. But right at the end, she brought up his mental health And it was very strange because she said that while basically he should be extradited and it wasn't a political trial and she had every faith in the United States justice system, she then went on to say um, that Julian's mental health was in such a state as the um, special administrative measures that he'd be subject to in the United States could well push him towards suicide. And also, in a kind of backhanded compliment, I guess you'd have to take it as, she said that Julian was such an intelligent man that no measures they took to prevent him committing suicide would be able to stop him if that's what he set his mind to, because he could set his mind to anything he wanted to achieve. That left him in a sort of state of limbo again, where he couldn't be extradited to the United States but where the United States were given a few weeks to to lodge an appeal, which they have lodged, um, to see whether due process 
has been carried out. That means that he's in jail in Belmarsh Prison for at least until May, when it looks like the appeal is slated for. Until then, there's really nothing for him to do but sit in a cold cell in Belmarsh. And what does he have access to in that prison cell? Nothing. Basically nothing. He's basically in solitary confinement. He's a non-convicted and non-charged person and being held at the request of the United States awaiting their appeal process for extradition on American charges. So he's got absolutely nothing in jail and he has very limited access, if at all, to his legal team. Um, He's not on any charges. He's in a very strange position. He's not even on remand, technically. He's being held at the request of the United States awaiting extradition to to the United States for um, charges that have been argued already in court are, are ridiculous. The same kind of charges, of course, the previous administration or the, the Obama administration pardoned Chelsea Manning for is just in a state of limbo. Now, the, the, the hard part with it at the moment is that Belmarsh is a very antiquated prison. It's notoriously bad conditions for prisoners. And at the moment, well, as of last week, I haven't heard anything this week, he's had minimum blankets. He's just had one blanket in freezing London temperatures over winter. It's it's a torture chamber. What they're doing is torturing him and trying to break him. Do you see similarities to the treatment of asylum seekers and refugees in places like Manus or the the hotel prisons where they make things so difficult that, well, maybe they will kill themselves? Yes, I do. I mean, we've moved to a... There's been a strange shift, I I think I can say, in, in recent years where the guise of being humanitarian and treating prisoners in jail or in detention of one kind or another humanely has all but been dropped. It's what, you know, philosophers like Agamben and Illich and that refer to as a bare life, that all they're doing is maintaining the existence to keep them technically alive with no access to human interaction, no access to any of the things that any normal human being would say constitutes a life that prisoners in normal jails have access to. Um, So I think what they're doing is by just maintaining this bare existence, this bare life, they're pushing people to say, is this a life worth living? And this is what a lot of people, like particularly out of Manus Island and places like that, um, have been saying to us, like some of the refugees who are kept in the in the Park Hotel have been saying that this is not life, this is merely being kept alive, one of the refugees said a couple of weeks ago. That's what they're trying to do, um, push them to the point where they say this is a life that's not worth living. And they're letting them out of those hotel prisons in dribs and drabs, but they're not going to a good place, are they? Because they're coming out into society with no support at all from the governments. And that's governments, isn't it? No support. That's disgusting. There's no support whatsoever. Some of these people have been incarcerated for eight years. Even if these people were healthy people who were raised with all the benefits of a pluralist society of Australia all their lives, 
after being incarcerated for eight years, there is an understanding that people need assistance to adjust to society. These people are let out into a society not to readjust to, but one they've never been in before. These people are, again, being set up to fail. It's almost as if the government is saying, oh, yeah, we'll make things as hard as possible for them, and then as soon as one of them, you know, snaps, does something wrong, breaks some trivial law, then we'll get them again. And while they've released, I think, close to 40 prisoners from the Park Hotel, there are still about 140, 150 prisoners who were brought from Manus under the Medivac program in detention centres all over Australia. I mean, it's great, don't get me wrong, it's great for the individuals involved that they're no longer in a refugee concentration camp. And I can understand their relation at being at last three men, but to the minds of most of us would not really fulfil the criteria of what we're calling free men. They're still dependent on the charity of others and they are so under the spotlight of scrutiny, it's not what I would call free. I'm sure you've spoken to some of these men that are now in the community. What did you learn about the treatments they got for their medical conditions from that hotel well, rooms? Basically none. No treatment whatsoever. The treatment was being off manus the ones I've spoken to, and they were off Manus because it was nothing, you know, it was, the whole thing was a scam. The whole thing of Manus Island, of course, was a scam. They were bought off on the Medivac thing, but then there's other issues as well that aren't being acknowledged. And one of those reasons is that the US and Australian governments have just signed a, um, just gone into a, a process of building another foreign mil- another military base, a foreign military base on Manus Island, just as things are hotting up towards China. So they needed to evacuate Manus of things like pesky asylum seekers who don't have ASIO clearances. You can hardly build a foreign base on an island where you're putting people without ASIO clearances. That's what that's about. But they weren't given any medical treatment to speak of. Some people were seeing doctors occasionally and they saw the occasional psychologist. But um, the whole thing was a scam. And even Peter Dutton has come out and said the reason they've been released is that it's cheaper for them to be free in the community than the government having to pay for their upkeep. So it was no humanitarian decision. It was no political decision. It was a decision based on cost-saving that's all it was to it, and that's the official reason that they're out there for the sole reason that it's cheaper. Disgusting. Well, perhaps they should have done that a few years ago. Yeah, and all the money that they could have saved from the detentions, because we know the rorts that took place with them, um, you know, the subcontractors for security operations and everything on Manus, and then the, the rorts that led to a corona outbreak, which was basically, you know, because of the same security firms providing security services to refugees and to people who, let's not call them refugees, let's call them to people, you know, illegally held prisoners, kidnapped victims, basically. All the money that could have been saved, we could have bought each one of them a house by now and set them up in a small business. So for Dutton now to say it's cheaper, well... As you say, he could have made that decision years ago. Just finishing off with that, we now have revelations that they've taken them out of one lot of hotels or motels and they've found some secret ones around the place. Yes, well, it surprised me, to be totally honest, 
that they moved them from Preston, which was fairly easily accessible by the activist community. They moved them almost right into the left's home ground in Carlton between Ligon Street and Melbourne University. Now, that was a stupid idea, but now they're moving them. They're moving other detainees to secret locations, and they won't be in Carlton. They'll be on the outskirts of suburbs. They'll be in the outskirts of Melbourne in places we never know the names of. It's a lesson learnt by the federal government, by Peter Dutton's border force. We need to find out where they are and put the pressure on the government like we put the pressure on them at the Mantra and at the park. Well, these security firms are doing very nice. Thank you. They're doing amazingly. And it's the security firms, I've got to say, to anybody listening there. I've been at a couple of things recently, um, protest-based things, where people are having a crack at the security firms, at the security guards, sorry. And you need to remember that these security guards are people who are only a step above the refugees in as much as they're rocking in Australia studying English and business and IT for the sole purpose of gaining a requisite number of points of getting permanent residency in Australia. Much like the refugees, the scale is different, of course, but these people are being forced to take security guard jobs where their life and their safety is at risk on an hourly rate that you or I wouldn't work for, that an Australian security guard wouldn't work for under an award under an award wage system and live in appalling conditions, share housing, in some instances hot bedding, and they're using these poor people to be the thugs and the heavies to keep these even poorer people in an illegal detention camp. It's the classic end of capitalism. And then we have Invasion Day last week. Were you there on the day? Yeah, we were there. We were there providing sound not the main stage because we haven't got the facilities to run a main stage. We provide the sound halfway down Burke Street. Then we had a little stage at um, the corner of Burke and Swanston. And um, again, down towards the end where we were relaying all the all the speeches through the live link of 3CR, I've got to say. Because the way that people were social distanced and the way the um, organisers of the rally decided to hold it there was no way that everybody could hear the speeches. They were spread out. They were halfway down. They were all the way down um, Burke Street and part of the way down Swanston Street while the speeches were happening. Um, so we provided PA systems and relays all along Burke Street and then part of the way down Swanston Street so that the people could still hear the speeches and the music. Where we couldn't, for a short time, relay the speeches because of technical difficulties, not from our end, we were able to play some appropriate music and keep chants going and things like that. So it was um, it was really good to be there and be a part of it, like we like we are every year. But more importantly, it was great to see so many people out on the streets. And when you think that you know it was only four or five, mate, six at the most years ago, where the the Blackfella contingent of an Invasion Day festivities, dare we call them were, you know, 50 people sitting down there protesting while the main parade went by. Now Invasion Day is the main game, and it's great that um, it's great that people are recognising that. It's great that even places like Cricket Australia are no longer prepared to use the term Australia Day for their January 
26 matches. They're not going to call it Invasion Day either, just yet. But the zeitgeist is moving towards recognition that Australia Day is not a day for celebration. And as you know as well as I, mate, it's very rare in our activist lives over a course of half a dozen years to see such a tremendous change in public opinion. Tell us a bit more about the Solidarity Sound System. Yeah, it's, um, look, it's myself and myself and another bloke mainly and, and friends help. Joe Lawback, Comrade Dubs, some people might know him as, has built a sound system. And it's interesting, sound systems were built that the concept of a sound system, system comes out of Jamaica and the reggae movement and they were built as a, as a political statement when they weren't allowed to have block parties and they weren't allowed to be partying in the street. And rather than everyone having ghetto blasters, people got together and built these amazingly large sound systems that blast the hell out of the whole block. The concept of sound systems since travelled around the world and Joe built one about, I guess it'd be 10 years ago now, started building it. So we've got the Solidarity Sound System, which um, at full peak will blow your socks off. What we've been doing is using it for major rallies and then we've also got some small, um, um, what do you call them, portable speakers, battery speakers. The old Black Star Collective that used to do some of the smaller rallies donated when they ceased operations last year or the year before, donated their um, portable equipment to Renegade Solidarity Sound. And so we've been playing at all the major rallies we, you know, We've played at the Assange rallies, we provide the music at the Invasion Day rallies, at the Black Lives Matter rally, we've been outside the Park Hotel regular occasions um, this year and last year, and playing tunes, actually taking requests from the, from the prisoners inside. It's interesting because it changes the mood, it changes the mood of a protest when you've got loud, cheerful music and when people can actually hear the speeches of what's being said. So Joe and I, we're in a situation now, I've got to say, I want to put, I want to put the hat out and say that all these things, while they don't cost us too much money to run and, and be there, except for repairs on generators and repairs on, you know, we, we broke a cone, we broke one of the drivers and just because it was so loud at, um, at the rally on Tuesday, and we've started a Patreon. So if you go to um, Solidarity Sound System on Facebook or go to patreon.com and look up Solidarity Sound System, chuck in a couple of bucks because we, well, you know, we're on the dole basically and we need the cash to keep the sound system going. And that's not a threat. Even without the cash, we'll still keep it going by hook or by crook. You know how we are. But um, it would be really nice to have some input to keep the sound, keep the sound happening in all these protests. And how do you liaise with the police? Well, this is another interesting one, mate. Because we are professional and everything is done with, you know, health and safety in mind, a lot of the police command actually respect that. So we have a reasonable one-on-one relationship with the police. But, and this is a big but, things are changing. We've been told three times so far this year by different coppers, you're going to love this, um, this phrase, that there is a new consistency whereby they're not letting amplified music take place outside of the CBD at protests. So they're trying to hit us with fines. They've got nothing in their, um, in their state laws that they can get us with. So they're actually calling in the council. The police are calling in 
Melbourne City Council enforcement officers complaining about the noise. The council enforcement officers tell us to stop because they've received complaints. And when we don't stop, the council then asks the police to help them enforce compliance with their noise restrictions. So it's a weird, it sort of falls halfway between being Kafkaesque and Pythonesque, I guess, the circles they're going around. It culminated a couple of weeks ago. We were outside playing some tunes outside the Park Hotel and the police actually charged for the PA system and started grabbing components of the PA system, but the crowd grabbed back and um, we kept control of it and in the end the police retreated their egos bruised and their tails between their legs. They didn't want that to be the hill they stood or fell on, I guess, outside an illegal prison. But things are changing, and it's interesting. I'm just working with some legal people at the moment to work out what's happening with the way the police and the Melbourne City Council have almost changed roles in trying to quash dissent and quash protest. As they say, we're allowed to protest. We're not allowed to make loud noise, congregating groups, block a footpath, block a street, place a thing within a thing. We're allowed to protest as long as we do it in such a way that nobody will knows, nobody knows we're protesting. So it's a, what they're calling a new consistency, what we're calling an attempt at a new precedent. The battle lines are drawn, dare I say, and um, the coming weeks and months are going to determine how much Melbourne City Council and the police allow Melbourne's widely appreciated, colourful and vibrant protest culture to continue. Those addresses again for people who are interested in giving you a hand? Well, on Facebook, Solidarity Sound System, and on Patreon.com. Patreon's a thing that allows you to um, to put in a dollar a week or a dollar a month or whatever towards um, ongoing support for various campaigns. So, you know, by giving a dollar a week or a couple of bucks a month, you um, you don't notice it coming out of your bank account, quite frankly, but they all add up together to keep a, to keep a campaign going. So Patreon.com or Facebook, and they're both Solidarity Sound System. Thanks for all that. No worries, Jan. Thank you, mate. And be sure to listen to Jacob Creek each Friday afternoon between 5 and 5.30 for his... Friday Rave. Hello, this is Virginia from the 3CR Garden Show. We are back live to the airwaves every Sunday from 7.30 to 9.15. There are some changes. Sadly, Pam has retired at the Garden Show and will be sorely missed. But Stephen and I are excited to be hosting the show and we have many old favourites and some new voices. So tune in for the usual fabulous gardening advice. 855 on the AM dial, 3CR digital or 3cr.org.au every Sunday from 7.30 to 9.15. COVID permitting. Look forward to your company. Cheers. And welcome to 2021 to the president of APAN, Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, Bishop George Browning. George was the ninth bishop of the Diocese of Canberra and Goulburn in the Anglican Church of Australia and retired in 2008. And for a number of years now, he'd been the president of APAN. 
and he's going to talk about a number of issues impacting on Palestinians in the occupied territories of Gaza and the West Bank and those living within the borders of Israel. George, for many countries around the world, including for Palestinians, the most pressing concern is the spread of the pandemic. What's the situation for the Palestinian people that you know of in both the Gaza, the West Bank and in Israel itself? As is often the case, it's very difficult to nail down hard facts. I was just reading something online just a moment ago saying that the uh, uh, Israeli government has now decided that it will provide COVID vaccinations to Palestinian prisoners in jail in Israel, which if that's the case, that's obviously a very good thing. But um, it is clear that Israel is not playing its full part in providing vaccination facility for Palestinians on the West Bank and and Gaza. And it argues that it it doesn't have to because under the Oslo Agreement, health was the responsibility of the Palestinians. Well, that in part is true, but the reality is that what provisions are available in Gaza and uh, the, uh, the West Bank is entirely in the Israeli hands and during the occupation and the blockade of, of Gaza, nothing gets through unless Israel lets it get through. So the responsibility really still lies with the occupying force and uh, the United Nations have made it clear they expect Israel to provide vaccines to the PA and through the PA to the Palestinian people. But uh, up till now, largely Israel has refused to do that. Well, why are there two points of view, one point of view from Oslo and another from the UN, about this issue of of an occupying force? The the difficulty is that the Oslo Agreement was really an agreement for a transition over five years, where we're now, you know, we're 25 years past. And so the Oslo Agreement, for all intents and purposes, is null and void. Israel has not kept up its uh, responsibility when the area was divided into A, B and C. C, which is the largest geographical area on the West Bank, has remained and and still remains totally under Israeli control. And so the Palestinians have no real possibility of doing anything in that area which is in their best interest unless Israel lets them do it. And Israel actually still through the occupying forces does just the other day, uh, a clinic in the West Bank was bulldozed by the Israeli army on the pretext that it was it had been illegally erected or some words to that effect. It's just unconscionable, really. But to rely on the vaccination is not the issue, is it? It's the, it's the conditions of the people living under occupation. Well, I- indeed. I mean, the COVID pandemic, which has affected so many countries terribly and is bound to affect poor people much more than it does uh, more wealthy people or people who are able to travel or people who can access health. And um, as as we know, even prior to COVID, if Palestinians were in desperate need of of health, their movement is restricted and there are many accounts of, of pregnant women who on their way to hospital are stopped at the blockades, uh, at the checkpoints, and are refused further travel via ambulance. And there have been some uh, instances which um, I'm sure are correct of loss of life because of this. So 
for Israel to say the health responsibility is the, Palest- is the Palestinians, but to deny them free access to hospitals, to deny the material which is required to keep them safe, is just um, contradictory. It's nonsense. It just continues the same narrative that Israel has constantly pursued, that, um, that they are not responsible for Palestinians, and yet they keep them under a, a military code of law. It's just hypocritical, really. How serious is the pandemic in the Palestinian areas? Well, again, Jan, it's, it's very hard to determine those facts. It's, it's likely to be more serious than, it, than the figures which are circulated, because, as we know, in Indonesia or many other places, where there's great crowds and you can't isolate people and uh, the kind of things we're used to here of four square metres or two square metres is simply not possible in areas where the population is dense and uh, where access to basic needs, food, etc., requires mixing. Um, It's very, very difficult. So I think the Palestinian Authority or the Palestinians themselves have done a terrific job. But like all people who... uh, are less fortunate in the world, they require assistance from those who are more fortunate. And um, Israel is the one who, who enables that or refuses it. And at the moment, uh, they're not enabling it in the way that they could, or, and as has been told by the United Nations. You mentioned that Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails might be given the vaccination. Mm, yeah. A huge number of Palestinians are in those jails, aren't they? And many have been there for many, many years. Yes, I was reading the account of of a man um, this morning who uh, has just been released after 19 years and he's come out into a world which he hardly recognises because during that 19-year period he was denied real access from his family. Um, His father wasn't allowed to visit him and so on and he's now having to relearn a life in a world which is vastly changed. And um, as Jan, as your listeners know, so many Palestinians are held for months, sometimes years, without charge. There is the case of the um, the CEO of Gaza's uh, World Vision, who is still held in custody. And um, the charges against him of fraud and so on have never been substantiated. No evidence has ever been presented and yet he remains in jail, and uh, uh, it's really quite scandalous. And children in that mix as well? Not not just 16-year-olds, but 12-year-olds, or even younger, 10-year-olds, are often... Um, I, I, I myself went to, to one of the uh, holding places just outside Jerusalem when children were, uh, came in shackles. They were, their feet are tied to the, their neighbour's feet and so on, and... Uh, they are being put in jail for having thrown a stone, but there's no evidence that they were the ones who threw the stone. Uh, the the um, Israeli army relies upon um, word of mouth, and uh, sometimes false accusations are made, but you know, homes are invaded at 2 o'clock in the morning, and children as young as nine are dragged out. It's really uh, quite terrible, and um, children throw stones because of what they perceive to be their the restrictions that are imposed upon them, and children anywhere in the world would do that. They're not terrorists. They're responding to the uh, limitations placed upon their lives. Um, And to be put in jail as a result of it is really quite scandalous. 
Well, you spoke a moment ago about the demolition of mm. a local health clinic. Yeah. It's not the only places that the continuing demolition of structures for, of Palestinians in their own land. Well, it, it is, Jan, and um, uh, if we can return for a moment to the Oslo Agreement. Uh, the, the Oslo Agreement divided the West Bank into areas A, B and C, and, and uh, areas A are nationally at least under total Palestinian control and, and Jews are not allowed to enter Area A. Um, but they, they are restricted to six or seven cities. Area B are villages that surround those cities that are some uh, are joint administration from Israel and uh, Palestine. Area C, which is 60% of the West Bank, is totally under the control of Israel. And Israel is in the process of depopulating the whole of Area C, really. Um, the reason why Israel does not want to formalize an agreement with Palestine is because the longer this goes on, the more it changes facts on the ground. And uh, one of the attempts that Netanyahu has underway at the moment is to totally depopulate the Jordan Valley. The reason given is for security, but the reality is it's the, it's the food bowl of Palestine. Anybody who has a house or a dwelling in a Palestinian in that area can have it arbitrarily demolished um, with little notice and, and no legal comeback. And what the demolition goes on day after day, not just the demolition of the houses, but uh, the uprooting of, of vineyards and olive groves, etc. In addition, there are so many stories um, I get to feed from Mondes, the, uh, the Jewish paper, the, the Jerusalem paper daily. Uh, settlers harass the Palestinian farmers. There was a, an account just two, two or three days ago of a Palestinian farmer and his son who were beaten almost senseless. They survived in full sight of the Israeli army who have responsibility for security. The Israeli army did nothing, nothing to stop them and just watched it happening. And this continues right throughout, really, the whole of Area C. And the settlements continue to grow? The United Nations constantly says it's wrong, and, and the European Union, on the whole, says it's wrong. Um, the main support, obviously, is from the United States. Hopefully, under the new administration, things will change. One of the documents that President Biden signed recently was to restore funding to the Palestinian Authority, which uh, Trump had stopped, which is a move in the right direction. And... Um, the situation in the Middle East is likely to change under the Biden administration, and um, the two main powers that, that vie, for, vie for dominance in the Middle East are Iran and Saudi Arabia. And un, under um, Trump, there was almost unequivocal support, not just for Israel, but also for Saudi Arabia. And um, no criticism was made of Saudi Arabia for its terrible abuses of of human, uh, human rights, etc. And quietly, America was supporting the, this terrible war in Yemen by the, by the provision of armaments to Saudi Arabia. And the whole agreement with the UAE, which um, has largely to do with armament sales, a lot of that looks like it's now going to be at least put on hold, if not 
stopped by Biden. So, and hopefully the um, the stop on um, the agreement with uh, Iran that it won't continue with its nuclear development, uh, and in return will have many of the uh, sanctions on it lifted. Hopefully there will, be, there will be a return by the U.S. to that agreement. So things could radically change in the Middle East, and they need to. The restoring of aid to Palestine by Biden, mm. how much is that aid, and, and in what areas did it go to? I'm not entirely sure of the figures, um, Jan, have to <laughs> seek notice for that question. Um, but it, go, it runs all across a number of things. And one of the most contentious, of course, is, is the support for uh, Palestinian refugees who continue to exist in camps, many of them in Lebanon, some in Syria, and lots of them in Jordan, etc., but the ones in Lebanon, and, and also in, in Gaza and in the West Bank too, but the ones in Lebanon have been particularly hard-pressed, not simply because of, have been exacerbated because of the difficulties that Lebanon is itself facing, but um, since 1967 and really since 1947, 48, um, the people in Lebanon are treated by the Lebanese as being in transition back to home. And so they don't have any rights. They don't have right to education, right to health, right to work, right to build a house, a right to electricity or anything like that. And so in order to survive, they require assistance from outside. That assistance has, much of it in the past has come from from the United States. So hopefully some of that will now return. The money that the US gives to Israel every year, the billions of dollars, as he mentioned, that's I don't know. That's a, that's a very interesting question. I don't think anything's been said about that. And um, I, I would imagine if he was to curtail that money, there would have to be, um, or put it another way, Israel, if he wanted to do something about that, he would have to put pressure on, on Israel to um, uh, comply with certain requirements in order to receive it. Now, what those requirements might be, I don't know. But that would be something quite interesting to follow in days to come, I think. I'm wondering, George, the impact of the, pan- the pandemic on the people in the occupied territories, particularly the World West Bank, of people, supporters not being able to visit and work with the Palestinians over the past year. That is true, and um, the pa- pandemic... For people who are reliant upon um, personal contact, obviously the pandemic has had an enormous impact. For example, we with APAN, we've not been able to um, organise any any tours to Palestine for for more than 12 months now, and I suspect won't be able to do so for a further 12 months until um, the vaccine is really globally distributed. So it it does have a, a major impact. There's no question about that, and I don't really have, as your listeners probably know, a significant percentage of the of, of the Palestinian population works in Israel, and they have to go through the checkpoints each day to to cross to get to work, because it's a bit like in Australia, we rely upon cheap labour from the Pacific and from backpackers to pick our fruit and and do a whole lot of other jobs, which. Uh, it's difficult to get Australians to do. The same applies in Israel, that the uh, 
some of the more laborious work and cleaning work and various things are done by Palestinians. So quite what's happened to their capacity to transition into into Israel to do the work, I'm not sure. I, I'm, I don't have those facts in front of me. But unemployment must be very high. It runs. It's, um, in, in Gaza, it's staggeringly high. It's, you know, for, for amongst young people, I think it's over 50% or some terrible figure. But um, in the West Bank itself, I think the figure is well over 20%. So, yeah, the figure is very high. Even the figure itself is not misleading, but you, then you have to ask yourself, what actually are these people paid? And uh, the, there are, thankfully, a number of Palestinians who are entrepreneurial, who um, run businesses, and who can secure a reasonable way of life, but a vast number um, cannot, and they rely really upon um, the lower level what low income is supposed to be in Australia. Mm. How difficult or easy is it to send funds to the occupied territories? Does it have to go through Israel or not? It doesn't uh, have to. Yeah, mon- money can be sent directly to... Um, to we, we have a number of, of groups who work through the churches. Most churches have organisations that work in Palestine and various other NGOs. It is possible to send money directly through them. And there are branches of Palestinian free trade, uh, fair trade, I'm sorry, um, which deserve support. <laughs> For example, Margaret and myself, we bought the Palestinian-made face masks. I've just got a packet of them on, on my desk here just looking at them. So uh, it's, it's possible to support Palestinian enterprise through, through their fair trade networks. Just reading a report on APAN's webpage, the... A new report, Gaza is almost unlivable after 15 years of blockade. In its annual report on the repercussions of Israel's blockade on Gaza, entitled, mm. entitled Suffocation and Isolation, Euro-Mediterranean mm. Human Rights Monitor has documented the grave humanitarian conditions facing Gazans and called for the blockade to be lifted unequivocally these conditions are unconscionable and have no moral, legal or policy justification. The siege must end. Hmm. What's anyone doing well, about that? Not much. Well, what you just read out is, is factually the case. It, and, but it's, it's been factually the case now for several years. It, the, the water is undrinkable. The, the mental health of the people must be just in an awful situation, the the Gazan fishermen are not allowed. The will be shot at in by the Israeli navy if they look like they're catching any fish, and all these terrible things all the time. We need to be reminded, though, too, that um, Egypt is part of the blockade. Egypt has a boundary with Gaza on the south, and um, Egypt does not allow material in either. And um, the current Egyptian administration, of course, is a partner with the United States, and uh, the essential blockade is is from Israel. But Egypt also it suits the Egyptian authorities not to uh, cooperate too much with the with the people of Gaza either. 
You couldn't imagine a situation like this in an, another country doing it to a small population. There'd be worldwide outcry, wouldn't there? There would. And I suppose, Jan, part of the difficulty is that people's capacity to listen is limited. And we, we know that with any story, really. There is a, a period of time when people will listen and they'll take the headlines but it's very difficult to maintain the interest over a long period of time and the difficulty, if, please God, there won't be another intifada and, and another great invasion of Israel into Gaza, if that were to happen, then, of course, it would be back on the headlines for a short period of time. But the, the silent suffering goes on day, week, month, year after year after year. And um, it, it's almost impossible to understand how people in those circumstances can survive, how they do survive, but people somehow or another eke out a living. But the, the concentration per square kilometre of people is, is massive. And um, as we know, uh, amongst poor people, the fertility rate is higher and the number of children born in Gaza per head of population is great, so that the overall average age of the Gaza Strip, I don't know what it is, but it's much, much younger than it would be here in Australia. But malnutrition is a serious problem? Malnutrition, but also disease from lack of adequate water. Uh, it's been the case for a long time that the aquifers have been drained, and so seawater seeps into the aquifers, and uh, little children under five suffer from kidney disease. It would be unknown in our part of the world, but it's a reality for people who live in Gaza. Finally, George, the book, your book. Yeah. yeah. Tell us about that. There's a fair bit about Palestine in the book. Uh, the book is called Not Helpful, Tales from a Truth Teller. And the title of the book really has to do with the whole idea of truth, truth that is embraced is life transformative but in the case of situations of injustice truth is very unhelpful um, then is resisted and that's the case with Israel truth is denied it, it, it's, uh, when Israel is confronted with truth about its occupation it denies that it's the case when you're a truth teller you get hit back you're, you're an anti-Semite in the case of Palestine you're an anti-Semite because you want to convey factual truth my book really highlights a number of issues. There is things about Palestine are all through the book. There is one major chapter on on the Middle East and Palestine. But the book is really about major issues. So I've got uh, one of the themes running through it is, will capitalism be the pariah of the 21st century that communism was in the 20th century? In the Middle East, I guess the question really is, is it possible for Israel-Palestine to become a bicultural powerhouse in the Middle East uh, or will it, is, it, is it fated to be what it is currently just a, a place where conflict remains forever, where injustice is allowed, where apartheid reigns. It needn't be that way but it, but it is um, and so and I, I've addressed the climate issue of course which has been one of the major passions of my life the, the book begins with uh, Three chapters, which are largely biographical, help the reader to understand how I was formed to be who I am and why 
although I've been an insider in the life of the church institution, in a sense I've been an insider with the heart of an outsider. <laughs> and um, that heart has sort of grown a bit stronger since I retired, I guess. What inspired you to write the book? Two things, probably. Firstly, my grandchildren. I, w- I wanted them to to be able to read and to hear what I think is a view of Christianity and its public face, which counters really the more fundamentalist nonsense which seems to predominate the news in terms of Christianity. And secondly, I wanted to point out that Christianity always has had a public face. It it isn't simply about a personalized religion. It actually has a public face. And in the developing world or the third world, it, it always has had that face. But in the West, both from within the church and from politicians, it's kind of denied that face. And, and I've been told so often by politicians, stay with your prayers and leave politics to us. Um, whereas in actual fact, Christianity is about injustice wherever that might be found. So it's a book really about what prophecy means in the 21st century. Is it dedicated to any particular person? It would be my wife who has put up with me for 50-something years and I give a lot of credit to her in the book. And the title again? Not Helpful, colon, Tales from a Truth Teller. And the publisher, is it out yet? Echo Books, no, it'll be out next month. Thanks, George. Okay, thanks, Jan. I've been speaking with Bishop George Browning, the president of APAN, Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network. And just to pick up on a couple of issues that George talked about there, about the Biden administration and sales of weapons to Saudi Arabia and UAE, the Biden administration has paused a $23 billion transfer of F-35 fighter jets to the United Arab Emirates and a massive weapons sale of $500 million from Raytheon alone to Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states. At a Raytheon quarterly earnings call earlier last week, the CEO, Greg Hayes, tried to reassure stockholders worried about Biden's hold on the $519 million sale. His grotesque words encapsulate the attitude that war profiteers have toward the people that they harm. Look, peace is not going to break out in the Middle East any time soon. I think it remains an area where we'll continue to see solid growth. Not to be outdone, Lockheed Martin CEO Jim Jacklett stated, there is no better way to get a tighter bond with an ally than sell them jet fighter aircraft. And if you'd like to support Palestinian craft, the place to look is www.palestinianfairtradeaustralia, all one word, .org.au. So that's www.palestinefairtradeaustralia.org.au.